You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome back to Talk Back, the Dramatist Guild's conversation about the theater world we see and the one we want to see. I'm your host, Christine Toy Johnson. Things are very different this season. At the time of recording, we weren't able to gather together in person due to the global pandemic. Most of our theaters are closed, and in addition, our industry is going through a national reckoning on the systems of oppression that have been influencing whose stories get told and how and where. A recent study from APAC, the Asian American Performers Action Coalition, has shown us again just how little parity there is on our stages. From writers to directors to actors to artistic directors, the numbers show that there are hiring biases across the industry. We will come through this unprecedented time together. But when we do, we can't return to whatever we thought of as normal. We want to come back better, building a fairer and more equitable artistic ecosystem. To that end, this season we're looking at one subject from many different angles, access. When we talk about access, we have to talk about the pipeline. Now, the pipeline, of course, is not literal. But it does embody a sort of tacit understanding of what background, experiences, or connections one needs in order to gain access to even being considered in the first place. Today, I'm excited to discuss all of this with two luminaries. Hi, I'm Georgia Stitt. I'm a composer and a lyricist and a music director, pianist type person uh, working in New York City. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm, uh, I'm Lloyd Sa. I'm a playwright and uh I'm very happy to be here uh, and to have served on the DEI committee, the Drummond's Guild Council, uh, with you, Christine. Georgia and Lloyd have each been working to combat theater's pipeline problem from different angles. We'll hear more about that later. First, I wanted to understand the pipeline as they see it, what it is, and how it gets perpetuated. I think that the pipeline started because of convenience, because of capitalism, and, you know, quite frankly, because of patriarchy and white supremacy culture. I think that it came about as a symptom of systems in place that make it very beneficial for certain institutions to perpetuate a kind of work that that can make them feel safe. The institutions within that pipeline structure feel needed. Young artists feel like, oh, I need that in order to make... Um, to make a, a livelihood, for example, like the the v- very expensive educational programs, and that these large institutions are ultimately held up by presenting the kind of work that their audiences expect. And I think that the those reasons for it existing are the same reasons why it continues to perpetuate. Yes. Uh, so a lot, a lot there. Um, a lot of assumptions that keep getting made about what qualifies a person, right, to get into the pipeline. And also, i like to expand on something you mentioned about, well, it has to do with relationships, but it also has to do with the circles that are formed and how the pipeline seems to be um, confined to those circles a lot of times. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Like the thing about a pipeline, like if I'm expanding the, just looking at the metaphor, it, it, a pipeline goes in one direction typically, right? That there's a source and that there's a destination. Right. And I think that the destination 
like when you look at the landscape of, of institutions that can convey success or legitimacy in our field, uh, whether they be produ- producing organizations or uh, media outlets or what have you, um, the more those destinations are the same, the more they're going to look for the same sources. If, right. the, if there's a diversity within, like if, like the thing that I want most for our field is that the, the landscape of these destinations is as varied as the kind of work that's being generated by our generation of artists. That might then instead obligate gatekeepers or people with power, people with the authority and the, and the opportunity to curate and decide what gets on stage, to go to the source, to develop relationships with the people who are generating the work and not just saying like waiting for that to be funneled to them through some pipe, Um, but actually developing a relationship with the communities that they, uh, that they're obligated to would be a really, really exciting development. I love that so much because I had never really considered that destination. You know, that is a large part of the question. Um, the assumptions of what the, that destination should be, quote unquote, should be. Georgia, do you have anything and you want to add about that? I do. I'm just very struck that the first two words that Lloyd said in response to this, when he said, how did it originate, were convenience and capitalism. Mm. And then you went on to patriarchy and white supremacy and all these things, which are, you know, which are also true. Yeah. But I'm going to start with um, with convenience and capitalism. And I think from a from a practitioner's point of view, when you're making the show and you're and you're in production and you need the assistance, you need the help. What you need is is the tried and true person that has done it before, the person that you know is going to do it well, and the person who's going to deliver. And so you ask among your colleagues and you say, "Who's going to help me get this work done?" Because otherwise, it reflects on me. That's the convenience element. And so the 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 net that you cast in terms of who you see in that moment is limited to who you know and who your colleagues know. And so this lack of diversity in that world is where that begins. If you only know people that have been sent to you or have found their way to you, and then your colleagues are all like you, and they only know the people, then then there's no way, there's no way to widen that net. I started an organization called Maestra Music that is um, that promotes uh, support, visibility, and community for the women who make the music in the musical theater. There were 22 people at the first meeting. We didn't even know each other. And then um, I actively started looking for, okay, who are the other women? Who's winning the awards? Who's graduating from the programs? Who's graduating from the, not, not the elite programs, the other programs? Who's moved to New York? Who is in this festival? Um, and and started emailing them individually and saying, hey, this this network exists. Won't you come? Won't you come? And so in New York City, that that list is now up to 160 something people. So there are 160 women wow. in New York City composing music for the theater actively, not like I aspire to do that one day, but I have this resume that shows that I've actively been doing it. 
And then we built um, a, a directory on our website, which is maestromusic.org. We built a directory and that has now gone global. I just don't ever want to hear anyone say again, I wanted to hire a woman and I couldn't find exactly. I love I love Meister so much. One of the things that is most frustrating to hear on so many different levels and, and pertaining to so many different groups of people is that there is a lack of parity because we don't exist. And so what Meister has done is provided proof <laughs> that we exist and it's awesome. So thank you Thanks. for that. Thanks. I mean, and I think it's step one, you know, it's, it's the beginning. And, um, and, and certainly as the conversation widens, we think, all right, are we serving our women of color? Are we serving, do we have any indigenous women in this community? Do we, we only have people in English speaking countries, you know, at a certain point it becomes, um, it, it, it's self-perpetuating that yes, the women that are being found are still in some ways, <laughs> the white women who have an education in music. And so that's where our focus is now, is making sure that we're um, we're really leaning into our responsibility to make sure that we're not creating the same pipeline problem uh, in a, a more narrow pipeline, I guess you could say. Piggybacking on something you, you have mentioned, Georgia, is that um, if you continue to look in the same pools, you will only continue to find the same people. So the idea of being able to expand our circles of familiarity is is a tough one, but it's uh, something really worth thinking about and, and not even just thinking about, but really taking action on because that's the only way we're going to uh, actually expand that pipeline. Well, here's an example. I can just expand on that for a yeah. minute. The way playing in a Broadway pit works for musicians is there's a person who holds the chair. That's the person who shows up every night and plays, let's say, the guitar every night. And then that person has a list of five approved subs. So if the main person can't play, then then there are five people who have been trained and vetted and, um, and are ready to step in on a moment's notice. And the show will sound the same. It, you know, the, the show isn't upset because the sub didn't know how it went. So those people are approved. There's a newish contractor named Christy Norder. She herself is a reed player. And she said, in order to get more women and people of color into the pipeline for that field, into the pipeline to be subs, to ultimately hold a chair on Broadway, we have to go, as Lloyd said, into the places where people have not been told that this work is available to them. And we have to say, hey, this is a, you play your instrument really well. You read music. You know how to do all of the you have all the qualifications to do this job. Do you know that this job exists? But then you have to bring them in. And, and she, along with the musicians union, has begun to train them, like a paid training process, two hours of union paid training, where you say, this is what will be expected of you. This is what's going to happen. And this is what you're going to need to do. And this is how you prepare. And this is what you're going to see when you get there. And you know all the things that you wouldn't necessarily know if you've never done this job before. And that has never happened before. There was an expectation that if you get asked to sub, you know what that means, or that maybe the person who's training you has has anecdotally told you what you need to know. But this formal training that says, I know you don't know what this job is, we're going to teach you what this job is so that you can be successful. I think beginning to think how to set people up for success is a way to expand the pipeline. That's so great. Uh, Lloyd, can you tell us about the work you did and the position you ha held at the Lark Theater? 
Yeah, uh, for 10 years I served as director of artistic programs at The Lark. One of the things I'm most proud of at The Lark is the variety of different programs that we did that were unlike anything else that exists in the field. And part of that is about the access programming. The Playwrights Week Open Access Programming at this point is, as far as I know, the only one of its size that continues to accept open submissions from anywhere with no submission fee. I know that a lot of places in the field now uh, that used to do that now charge fees or even select participants not from that pool entirely, but curate some of those positions as well. I think that those are big barriers to access. But I think another big barrier to access is the, the limited range of ways in which things are selected. So one of the other things that we tried to do a lot at the LARC was um, lean on nominators, nominators from areas and uh, communities that, you know, an organization based in New York might not have the ability to, to identify. Um, so leaders, you know, grassroots or theater organizations, new to play development programs, educational uh, organizations across the country from specific cultural communities uh, to, um, you know, just widen the range of folks that could be considered for a lot of these opportunities. But even more than that are like the partnerships, which are really about identifying leaders or working with leaders within cultural communities that are already doing like really robust, really intentional and really impactful work and working just to just to try to help amplify that. I'm thinking in particular about the, uh, you know, partnering with Greg Mosgala and the Apathite around disabled artists, um, Keith Joseph Atkins with the new Blackfest, um, Noor Theater, and also the work that Catherine Correa is doing um, in pairing Middle East American artists in conversation with uh, Middle East theater organizations and, uh, and playwrights from the Middle East in addition to translation programs uh, with Mexico, Romania, Russia, and Chinese language um, playwrights. These are programs that just don't exist in other places. And I think what it, what it represented was creating this ecology where there was a, the kind of artists who were in conversation with each other and uh, working together and collaborating just was a very different kind of theater ecology than you see in other organizations. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that the Lark is an organization that didn't, as a non-producing theater company, doesn't have to worry about uh, critics or ticket sales or, or tech. Because of the, that unique positioning, there's an obligation to serve as a access point in ways that larger, that we know that larger institutions that are risk averse are not going to, it's a void they're not going to fill. It's a, it's a role they're, they, they're not going to fill. They're not going to do the work in developing relationships with those cultural communities. Mm -hmm. So maybe, you know, maybe that there's an opportunity to just provide a different kind of access point in the field writ large. Mm -hmm. Maybe there's a kind of access point where we can develop within a community of writers a different definition of success to put them in a position where they're in conversation with other artists in ways that feel fulfilling and feel sustainable and feel like uh, the kind of work that they want to do in the world and that feels like gives them agency over what their work is doing in the world then that is, a, you know, not just a different access point, but in some ways a much richer access point. 
I love that so much, Lloyd, everything about that. And I think, you know, these conversations that we have about partnerships and relationships are so important. I've literally heard artistic directors from some larger commercially run theaters say that they don't have time to go meet other directors, playwrights, uh, designers uh, than, than they already know. And so that's, so they, they keep doing the same things with the same people. I, I think it is also that they depend on the relationships that they already have, not just with the writers, but also with the agents and with the literary yes. agents and the, you know, they trust that they're going to be sent the people that they're supposed to pay attention to. And so as you continue to trickle down that chain, everyone in that chain has to commit to upsetting the way they've done things before. Yes. You know, the agents have to look at their rosters. The literary agents have to look at the rosters. The, we have to look at who our colleagues are and who our peers are, mm -hmm. all of us. Mm -hmm. And that is the great work, right? That is, like you said, you have to do the, that work in order to move forward. Yeah, and I think part of that, like that kind of systemic behavior um, is symptomatic of a larger thing. Um, I can't discount the role of artistic directors and their relationship to fundraising, the mm -hmm. obligations mm -hmm. of fundraising, sure. the role of boards, right. the way this field is structured, the way nonprofit theater structures you know, have been modeled over a very long time puts a lot of power in, in these concentrated areas of um, historic wealth, ultimately. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we're in a moment now, you know, we're in a moment where theaters are in a moment of existential crisis, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of uncertainty about, and I, like, I, I don't know what's going to happen to institutions, but I also don't know where are the resources going to come from and where are they going to go? Um, like, it's my hope that, uh, that, what happens with philanthropy, what happens with um, uh, the funding cycles in our field that we can say, you know what, we need a diversity of organizational structures. We need uh, to populate this field with lots of different kinds of organizations that the smaller culturally specific grassroots organizations can get funded <laughs> in uh like i think that that would be a huge sea change for our field if we started to to you know uh to to redistribute um a lot of the um a lot of the money that comes from philanthropy um that it doesn't that it that it doesn't ha follow the same rubric of the majority of it going to the large institutions that already have, you know, that have these high, high ticket prices, because that creates the obligation for those organizations to look for what's going to fill those houses at right. those prices. Mm -hmm. So then they're looking for things in a different way. Um, uh, it's also it's also tied to capitalism. I mean, we all know that from but when you said that as one of your very first words, I keep thinking about it, that it's connected to this idea that if you um, in America, if you work really hard and make a lot of money, then you get to be the decision maker and you get to be the one who decides where the money goes. Mm -hmm. But if we're not starting from an even playing field, if we're not 
if everyone doesn't actually have the same opportunity to be rewarded for their work, um, then it then it is a self-fulfilling prophecy that only the elite are the ones with the money and the elite are the ones that have the power. And, and the entire theater is built on this idea that those who have the money will support those who are doing the work. Um, and there's an inequity built into it from the foundation. Last season, we talked about stats being collected that reflect the lack of parity across the industry. And I wonder what your perspectives are on whether or not this kind of data collecting can make a difference. Yeah, I mean, I think when the data is alarming, then it um, it should serve as a wake-up call. And I think that that data is alarming and continues to be alarming, even as it improves. You know, I think sometimes it can be hard to read data and know what to take away from it, but the data that we have is alarming. And I think uh, the, the way to move forward is clear. The, yeah, I think collecting the data is important. I agree that the more alarming it is, the more of a wake-up call it serves to be. But it's also in how we tell the story of the data, because we are storytellers in an industry of storytellers. And so uh, it's it's not just having the numbers, it's it's what the numbers say about what they're representing. We have we've collected data, we're starting to collect data. We're at the very beginning of a process with, with gender in music, in music theater. And and for example, one of the statistics that we found was that in a five-year period, I'd have to, I don't want to quote it because I'd have to look it up to be exactly sure, but in a five-year period on Broadway, there were only two women out of roughly 180 chairs available on Broadway over the course of five years. Two of them were women. And in both cases, they were hired specifically because either it was an all-female show or the band was visible on stage. So in five years, not a single woman was hired to play guitar just because she could play the guitar. And you hear a story like that and you think, how is that possible? That cannot be possible. And and that is part of why it's alarming. It's um, it's that they allow different stories to reveal themselves and, and they activate people to say, well, we have to do something about that in a way that just saying we have a problem doesn't do. How can we tell the story of those of those stats and of that data in sort of new ways to get ears open about it and action to come from that do you do you have any thoughts on that i would welcome anyone's thoughts on that it is a thing that i wrestle with too like a you know it was as lloyd said shocking and activating um and so that's one way to go. But I agree that the the marketing of the idea is just as important as the idea itself. Lloyd, do you have any words of wisdom, insight? Um, like going back to this thing about um, the ecology of the field and wanting to make sure that they're like, you know, part of one of the things about the data is that like by revealing who's getting on stage, there's also the question of who's making those decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like, what do you do about the data? <laughs> and I think the first thing is like, oh, let's have the, these same people who are making these decisions just pick more different people. There are organizations all over the country that are doing extraordinary work. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is leadership. There is extraordinary leadership happening in our field all across the place, you know, from my point of view. Like, and, and, and as a writer, like, I've worked predominantly within culturally specific or, you know, small to mid-sized grassroots organizations. Um, and I find so much value 
um, in working within those kinds of organizations, not just um, artistically, but just on a personal level of feeling like what the impact of that is, seeing the difference in uh, the audiences that you're uh, that you're talking to when you're in those organizations. You know, sometimes they're more intimate, but sometimes they're exactly the right audiences you want to be talking to. There's a different type of conversation that you're having around cultural expression, around what you're saying, or what you're exploring. Because I think as artists, you know, sometimes when we do our most raw, most dangerous, most uncertain work, we're interrogating something in ourselves. And it's hard to interrogate that in a place where you feel like the other. If you're interrogating that with other people, collaborators and audiences who are interrogating that with you, then it becomes just a very different, richer, um, more um, philosophically experimental exercise. Lloyd, I think that's like the most mind-blowing thing you said that I, to me in this, this whole talk is um, that it's hard to do that interrogation when you feel like the other, mm -hmm. that what we need in order to do this work is to create safe spaces where we feel like we're being encouraged and welcomed. And I, it, it makes me think about how important it is not, not just to change the leadership of the industry, but also the audiences, you know, who's coming to, who's seeing them, who's welcoming them. I thought there has to be something from the, from the commercial theater world that stops thinking of that as other theater, it stops thinking of that as like, well, there's what we do and then there's what they do, but that it is all this collective, you know, this is the experience of being an American. This is what, this is what we do. And ultimately I think it does come down to the, can I sell this? Can I sell this to my audience? That's what I think the artistic directors and the theaters are asking. Can I sell this? And the answer has to be, that's your job. That's your job is to figure out how to sell this, how to make your audience believe that these are the stories that will enrich them and will allow them to do their own interrogations, that, that the diversifying that you are doing at the top leadership level is actually the work of country. It's the work that we all have to do. And then parallel that to, and it will yield you the profit that you need to, to keep this institution running. Mm -hmm. I feel like that is where the conversation has to go. I'd love to know from both of you other thoughts on how we can each take the reins and help expand the pipeline. Well, the thing that I keep coming back to is this idea of mentorship and, and who who is already in the room and who's holding the door open for the next person to come in. That when I think back on the jobs I had, it was because because somebody said, Hey, I think you would be good for this. Why don't you come and watch me do it for a little while? And then, and then ultimately I'll be able to let you do it, which is beneficial to both people because the person, the person on the top of that food chain is allowed to get rid of some of the work that is, you know, filling up his or her plate. And then the person who comes up is learning. It's just this core idea of mentorship. And I think the word mentorship has become to be this very heavy thing. Like, will you be my mentor? It feels like this enormous uh, obligation and its contribution. And yes, I will, like, I'll be your teacher for a year and I'll shepherd you. And in fact, sometimes it's just the idea of inviting someone in. The, um, there's a fantastic initiative called the Plus One Initiative. It comes from the Time's Up movement, this idea that if you have, let's say, a pair of tickets to an opening night party or a gala or a benefit or something, instead of just bringing your significant other, why don't you bring someone who would benefit from being in the room? So that's an individual thing that you can do. 
I'll say in my world, especially younger people write me and say, can I take you to coffee? Which is such a daunting, overwhelming thing. Like I see you asking for access. I see you thinking that I have access. And what, what, can, what can I give you that will, that will be a satisfying answer to that question? Mm. So what is our role in that and in, in thinking of mentorship in a less intimidating way? Because mentorship can come in many different forms, right? It has yeah. to, or we would never right. do it. It's too daunting. Right. right. Lloyd, do you have any comments? We're looking for impact um, and ways to quantify that impact that aren't rooted in capitalism. Mm. It's about like, what is the work you're doing, doing in the world? That's the big and question. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And what could it be doing in the world? Yes. And now is the time to really think about that. Mm -hmm. Really uplifting for me too to speak to both of you. And uh, thank you for for all of your um, insight and activism and initiative on all the things that you do to uh, make a difference. I really am so grateful to both of you. Thank you. Thanks. My thanks to our guests, Georgia Stitt and Lloyd Suh. You can learn more about Georgia's work by visiting georgiastitt.com or maestra.com. To learn more about Lloyd's work, visit newdramatist.org or mayitheater.org. Next week, we're taking a look at the advantages and disadvantages of participating in collegiate and graduate-level theater programs. Our guests will be Vichet Chum and KJ Sanchez. Talk Back is a production of the Dramatist Guild of America. It was produced by Sarah Storm, Amy Von Masick, and myself. Our theme music was composed by Andrea Daly. Special thanks to Tina Fallon, Terry Stratton, and the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee at the Dramatist Guild. I'm your host, Christine Toy Johnson. Please support your local arts community. They need us. See you next week. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.